today on CityCast Salt Lake. When Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas wrote about the end of Roe v. Wade, he wrote that this meant a number of other landmark cases should be revisited as well. Among them, Obergefell v. Hodges, which determined the right to same-sex marriage. States with conservative political majorities like ours have already heard this invitation from Justice Thomas. And recently, Utah Senate President Stuart Adams said that he would support the Supreme Court reconsidering gay marriage. In early June, just after the Roe decision was leaked, I had a chance to talk about how we maintain hard-fought rights with Senator Derek Kitchen and Jim Obergefell, both of whom were plaintiffs in cases that enshrined the right to marry. Senator Kitchen, here in Utah, and Jim Obergefell, famously, at the Supreme Court. It's Thursday, July 14th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Jim and Derek, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, thanks for inviting me along. Of course. Before we get sort of into the meat of our conversation, I wonder if you both wouldn't mind just briefly laying out the cases that you were a part of and how they've contributed to where we're at now in terms of LGBTQ plus rights. I'll start with you, Derek, if you don't mind. Well, I was um, a part of a case that became known as Kitchen versus Herbert. We filed back in March of 2013. And in December of 2013, that same year, uh, Utah became the first state to overturn a state ban on same-sex marriage through the federal courts. So here in Utah, Judge Robert Shelby issued a historic ruling on the heels of the decision out of the Supreme Court uh, that was known as the Windsor case. Um, we were the first state to legalize it uh, using that as precedent-setting language in the argument. Um, and uh, that went on to uh, legalize same-sex marriage in Utah and the entire Tenth Circuit um, in the 2014. Huge win. Jim, your win was the, the win f- heard around the world, I think. But if you wouldn't mind being gracious and talking us through it just a little bit for anyone who, I don't know, wasn't born yet. <laughs> Happy to do that. <laughs> so my case started in 2013 as well, just like Derek's. And on June 26, 2013, when the Windsor case, when the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, I proposed to my husband who, well, my partner at the time, who was dying of ALS. And we got married in Maryland inside a chartered medical jet because we were in Ohio. And Ohio had its own state-level version of the Defense of Marriage Act, so we weren't able to get married there. And that was on July 11th, 2013. On July 19th, 2013, we filed suit in federal district court to have our marriage recognized on John's death certificate so that when he died, he would die a married man. And that July 22nd, 2013, the federal district court ruled in our favor. And then John died in, two, in October of 2013. 2014, we went to the, to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals with cases from Kentucky, Tennessee, Michigan, and another one from Ohio. They ruled against us, setting the stage for my appeal to the Supreme Court. And then I became the name plaintiff with more than 30 other plaintiffs and more than 20 attorneys in the case that became known as Obergefell v. Hodges. And that brought nationwide marriage equality. 
It feels like so long ago. And yet I'm curious for both of you, what's changed? How, how do you feel that the conversation has changed? Feel free to jump in. You know, after we started winning marriage cases in the United States, and then of course, after Jim's case at the Supreme Court, um, I, I, my understanding and my assessment is that the general public quickly changed their mind. Even folks that may have been fence sitting on same-sex marriage, um, you know, once it was law of the land, I feel like it was just was so quickly um, understood as a fundamental right here in the United States to the point where even conservatives were just sort of, they made peace with it and moved on. At least that's what it seemed, you know, for a while. Obviously, Trump came along, politically speaking, and, and you know, you know, shifted the conversation on a whole variety of important political matters. Um, and so it, I think it revealed the fact that while conservatives and others may have gone quiet on issues related to, you know, LGBTQ families, um, they were still very much there. And so I, I do believe that by and large, the general public have come to accept uh, LGBTQ families and, you know, a, realize that uh, same-sex marriage is, is a fact that ought to be um, uh, a granted right in the United States, right? Um, but I, I sort of feel this pullback uh, on, on some of these matters. Right. Yeah. And I think, like, Jim, one of the reasons that it feels like your case is back in the news is because, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade could I think a lot of people really fear trigger a backslide of civil rights rulings across the board in particular, one of them being the right to marriage. Do you feel that? I absolutely do, Ali. I'm concerned about our right to marry and our right to have those marriages recognized no matter what state we call home. And in fact, I'm worried about the fundamental right to marry in general because that leaked decision in Roe versus Wade the, the rationale used to overturn Roe versus Wade talks about fundamental rights or those rights that are not specifically outlined in the Constitution. They must have a long history and tradition in the United States in order to be considered a fundamental right. So I take this back just to interracial marriage. I mean, 1967 was the first time the Supreme Court recognized in a decision the fundamental right to marry in their decision in Loving versus Virginia. Well, in the United States, 1967 until now is not a long history or tradition. And in fact, this nation has a much longer tradition of denying interracial couples the ability to get married. So I'm worried about the right to marry for inter interracial couples. I'm worried about the right to marry for same-sex couples. I'm worried about the right to privacy. I mean, even continuing to talk about just the LGBTQ plus community, Lawrence versus Texas, which decriminalized intimacy between two people of the same sex. That was only decided in was either 2003 or 2004. So we, we, we stand to lose a lot that we have come to enjoy and believe we would always have the right to enjoy. So I, I am concerned, very much concerned because of that leaked decision and the rationales used in that. It feels like we're staring down the barrel of a long summer or, well, I guess two and a half weeks of decisions that are going to feel like a long summer. Um, and and what we thought was done can be undone, it feels like, is one of the things that we're just learning and feeling right now. And I'll be honest, I'm scared. Like, I feel scared. Are you scared? Do you feel scared? I certainly am scared. And in fact, I'll share this this 
quick story. The, the week of that leaked decision, one of the other plaintiffs in Obergefell v. Hodges texted me and we had a text conversation. And at the end of it, he, his message was, well, Jim, I was texting you to feel more hopeful, to, fee- to feel not quite so afraid about this. And my response was, well, I'm sorry, but I feel like my job right now is to, to help people understand why I'm afraid and why they perhaps should also be afraid. So I am concerned. Mm-hmm. When one fundamental right is threatened or undermined, that opens up the door for all of our fundamental rights in the United States. And so I am not scared right now. I am very worried. I'm concerned. And I think that we must be acting with a sense of urgency to codify um, our other fundamental rights, marriage being one of them, right? We must focus in the state of Utah and around the country at uh, codifying these rights, because if the Supreme Court does the unthinkable on our families uh, and, and taking away our rights to legal protection for our marriages, then we need to know that our states are are looking out for us. Well, and I think one of the reasons that people are afraid is because, you know, you brought up that, like, as soon as we had marriage equality, that people sort of accepted it. And then we had Trump and it felt like things shifted. But there was also a groundswell, sort of that Tea Party groundswell. And I think people feel like the lower courts in particular are stacked. And we're seeing, like, just some of these these lower courts are in in for this fight and that feels very local. On that note, on that point you brought up, Derek, I think, you know, federal events really drive the news cycle. But my sense is that if we're learning anything from being handed down these extremely unpopular decisions, it's that we really have to find local solutions. And I'm curious how you both think a, like, what do some of those look like? And B, how do we rally support? Like, how do we get people as riled up and as present and as prepared locally as I think a lot of people are nationally? State and local is so important. And what I see my role right now is much what we're doing today. We're talking about this. We're, we're trying to get the message out to help people understand why they should be involved, why they should care, and to, to make sure that people don't feel the sense of, well, they could never take away marriage equality. We can't feel that way. That complacency will hurt us. So I see that as really my main role right now is being loud about this, being insistent about this. So if you were to give like a really specific local call to action, what would it be? I think it's really important for all of us to engage with our local elected officials. Now, You can't maybe stay engaged on every single decision that happens at the mayor's level or at the county council or even at the state legislative level. But when things are really important to you around your marriage or the air that you breathe or the road that you drive on, it's really important that you take the time to engage with your elected officials. And I, of course, for my part, have to make a plug for local news because I think, you know, when we get these big stories, when it comes from from national outlets and people are like, I think the response often is like, why aren't we doing anything? Or like, how did we get here? And it's like, that's a difficult entry point for action. Those entry points for action are the steps along the way. And the people that are sharing those stories and those steps are your local reporters and your local news outlets. And so I just have to make my personal plug for staying engaged with local news. I can't not. Um, you know, my my really my last question for you all is I think we're fighting, it feels like two fights right now. And one is 
to retain the laws that we have, to maintain the progress that we've achieved. But we also know and we hear from activists and community members that we need to to still be pushing beyond them. Like we have to keep fighting for what we've got and asking for more and demanding better. And I'm curious, what do you think is next in this, like in the fight for queer liberation? You know, it's Pride Month. Like we're thinking about the future beyond what we've got now. What's next? For me personally, it always comes back to socio and economic justice, right? So if queer people are still breathing terrible air, if queer people still do not have access to clean water, if LGBTQ people still are afraid to go to school or to the grocery store and, you know, fear for gun violence, right? Like we have to focus on quality of life issues that matter not only to LGBTQ people, but to to people uh, of all walks of life, right? And again, it's for me, it's all about economic and, and environmental justice because it impacts all of us, no matter what we identify as or how we live our lives. Being specific to the queer community, I think our energies right now, we really should be incredibly vocal and supportive and out there working for and fighting for our transgender community. I mean, we see these bills across the nation attacking transgender girls' ability to play sports with their friends or in the state of Ohio, the Ohio House just voted. They had a vote for a bill that would allow forced genital inspections in schools. How anyone can think that is appropriate or a good use of any state legislature's time is beyond me. Those are not making life better for anyone. So transgender rights are, they're under attack. They're the most vulnerable part of our community and the opponents of equality know that. And If I could pick one legislative thing that we should be working on at a state level and at the federal level, non-discrimination protections, updating the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation through the Equality Act. We live in a time when we all need to be involved to some degree or another. We cannot sit back and assume that you know, what we've achieved is going to be with us forever. We have to play defense. And I'm so proud to be a member of the LGBTQ community because we have, we come from a long history of fighters, of people who are willing to stand up and fight for what's right and to insist that it, that it happened. Thank you both so much for your time and for pursuing public service. I say this often, I'll say it again. It's a thankless job. It's so important. I really enjoy chatting with you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Ali. This was great. A little news before we go. Of course, quite a bit has changed since Derek Kitchen, Jim Obergefell, and I had this conversation. For one, Roe is no longer the law of the land and abortion health care is being undermined in a patchwork of state laws, including our own. Though Utah's trigger ban is currently on hold as its merit is debated in court. For now, elective abortions are legal and safe in Utah up to 18 weeks of pregnancy. As for Senator Kitchen's bill to codify gay marriage in Utah, well, it's off the table for now. In January, a new senator will be sworn in to represent much of Salt Lake City at the Capitol. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Plum. She beat Senator Kitchen in a primary election, which was finally certified on Tuesday afternoon. And you might already know her. As a citizen lobbyist and medical director of Utah Naloxone, 
Dr. Plum has helped pass some really progressive laws, increasing Utah's access to naloxone, a life-saving intervention that reverses an opioid overdose. Dr. Plum was on our show a while back to talk about where you can pick up a naloxone kit to keep on you, and she did an audio-only training for us on how to identify and reverse an opioid overdose. I recommend listening and getting to know your new senator. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around this city. Bye. Bye.